Trust Me is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's the new year, which means it's time for a whole new you, right? Big resolutions can be exciting, but maybe you're already making small strides in your life that you don't even notice. Like organizing your apartment, making more homemade meals, or taking your morning walks while listening to your favorite podcasts. BetterHelp Online Therapy helps you find your strengths so you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. I value therapy because it gives me a sounding board to understand what parts of my life are working and what parts I can try harder on. It's one of my favorite parts of my week. Therapy is great for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. And it's not just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. So just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash trust today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash trust. If you have your own story of being in a cult or a high control group, or if you've had experience with manipulation or abuse of power that you'd like to share, leave us a message on our hotline number at 347-86-TRUST. That's 347-868-7878. Or shoot us an email at trustmepod at gmail.com. Trust me. Dude, you trust me. Trust me. I'm like a smart person. I've never lied to you. I never have lied to you. If you think that one person has all the answers, don't. Welcome to Trust Me, the podcast about cults, extreme belief, and manipulation from two Girl Scouts who've actually (laughs) experienced it. I'm Lola Blanc. And I'm Megan Elizabeth. Today's part one of our interview with Michelle Dowd, professor and author of a book called Forager, Field Notes for Surviving a Family Cult. She is a survivor of a cult called The Field, which was founded by her own grandpa in the 1930s. In part one today, she's going to tell us about the origins of the group, which started out as an after-school program for boys, and how it evolved into something more sinister as the boys grew up and continued to follow her grandfather, who claimed he'd lived to be 500 years old. Spoiler, he didn't. We'll talk about her childhood traveling the country and what the group called The Trip, performing plays and circus acts, including being a magician's assistant and a poodle conductor, how children were trained to talk to authorities and outsiders, and how she was taught to prioritize survival above all else. And next week, we will talk about life on the mountain, learning survival skills, and how she eventually left the group. There are so many facets to her story. It's actually insane. I cannot wait for this interview. But before we get started, (laughs) Megan, tell me what your cultiest thing is this week. Well, number one, I've just been loving this week how much you love that she was a poodle conductor. Like every (laughs) time that comes up, you you like light up. I mean, I I think this is a possible (laughs) career for you. I mean, there's no phrase like poodle conductor. There is no (laughs) phrase like that. It is a real thing. It sounds fake. It sounds like a cartoon. I love it. Y'all will hear her speak about it in the interview. Um, Actually, I'm choosing something from her book, which was just a point that I've never really had made before from the Bible, which is if you want to wear a lot of makeup or jewelry or whatever, sometimes people will call you a Jezebel. And she made the point in the book that nature, because she learns everything she does from the wilderness, even nature and plants will make themselves brighter and more beautiful Mm. and all of these different things to survive. And I was like, what an amazing 
point. And you know, you can wear makeup or not. That's not the uh, message I took. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm a total Jezebel. I, me too. Jack and I went to a reptile show in LA. It's like an expo of like of course reptiles <laughs> this past weekend. <laughs> Fucking loved it. <laughs> it was one of my Christmas presents because I was <gasps> I was so excited about the reptiles. But wow, dude, these frogs, these lizards, these snakes are so beautiful. Like the colors. I wanted to eat them because they were so many different, beautiful colors. It's bizarre. Nature yeah. is for sure a Jezebel. I mean, every, mm-hmm. every animal is a Jezebel in their own way. Uh-huh. Yep. So I just thought she just makes some amazing points in the book. I really love the book. So that was my takeaway from the week. What about you? What's your cultiest thing of the week? You know, I've met a lobbyist this week, and I actually think he's amazing, and he is like an ethical lobbyist. But oh, that's I that's always nice. <laughs> yeah. But I started just thinking about lobbies and lobbying and how actually potentially incredibly immoral it is. Like we know, for example, that ExxonMobil like purposely went out of their way to convince the country that climate change was not happening, even when their scientists were on the forefront of sounding the alarm that it was happening. But because they wanted to continue to make profit they worked so hard to convince the world that climate change wasn't real. NRA does the same thing. Obviously, there's been a lot of talk right now about APAC, um, which can teeter on anti-Semitic sometimes. But also, there is something to be said when a lobbying group has such outsized influence on American politicians. Jack was actually telling me that he knew someone who was a soda lobbyist, and their whole job was Mm. trying to convince people that soda is actually healthy. It's It's a health food. I would buy that message immediately. (laughs) I mean, listen, I'm a Celsius feels healthy to me when I drink it. I know it's not, but in my brain. Diet Coke does something to my body that I know is good. (laughs) I'm totally (laughs) for sure true. Um, But it just made me think about how fascinating our politics are. Obviously, many countries have lobbyists, but we are constantly, our politicians, as well as the the public at large, are constantly being influenced by people whose job it is to convince you of a reality that's not quite actually reality. And that, to me, is fucking fascinating. That is a, like, large-scale manipulation that is, like, a mass media kind of cult. And I want to learn more about it. Maybe we should do a whole episode on it. I would love to. That, folks, is my cultiest <laughs> thing. Wow. I, I'm going to look into everything you just talked about because I'm not very well versed in it. But sounds interesting. I can't wait to talk to Michelle. Shall we do it? Let's do it. Selling a little or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. We sell t-shirts online and even just that is tough to do. If you're someone who's selling not just t-shirts but also say ceramics or furniture or whatever else you sell, Shopify is so useful for online sales. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From launching your online shop to the first real life store all the way to did we just hit a million orders? Shopify is there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And they help you sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. 
Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash trust me, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash trust me now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash trust me. Welcome, Michelle Dowd, to Trust Me. Thank you so much for being here in the studio with us. Thank you for having me. I love being here. It's nice to see you both in person. I know. And for the record, my pants are making that sound. So if anyone hears that, that is my leather pants. <laughs> Don't mind me. You made a choice, Lola. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, I didn't think about the sound. You are here today because you wrote a beautiful book called Forager, Field Notes for Surviving a Family Cult, which is about your upbringing. Can you start us off by telling us what was the field and who was your grandpa? The field is... The- the name of an organization that I was raised in that my grandfather started. He was a cult leader. He started the organization in 1931 in Pasadena, just um, east of L.A., and long, long before my mother was born and before I was born, he ran this as an all-boys organization. My mother was his first daughter. He ended up having two daughters after his three sons. And um, he spent his entire adult life until he died running this organization as his only occupation. This was like a an organization for boys, like teaching them stuff, like what, after school Great activities. Question. What was it? <laughs> <laughs> so he had started it as originally as a Boy Scout troop, and so when I believe, um, and there's a little bit of legend around all this, but he started it by taking them out into nature, um, mm. onto the mountains, taking them on the kinds of expeditions that Boy Scouts would have done. But he felt that Boy Scouts didn't give the boys enough time in this little collective group. And he felt that boys need to be separated from their families in order to really learn what it's like to survive in the wilderness. So yeah, the Boy Scouts get a little distracted by like tying knots and stuff. And he, <laughs> and he was like, let's go more yeah. into the group. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't want to speak of Boy Scouts at large, and I certainly don't know what the Boy Scouts was like in the 30s, but um, I think Boy Scouts are, for the most part, normal young men who um, live in normal families, yeah. and they're just learning some skills, bow and arrow skills, you know, um, not tying, things like that. Um, my grandfather probably learned quite a bit from the Boy Scouts um, in terms of how to run a group of young men. And then he took those young men and some of the original young men that he had in the 1930s stayed with him until his death. And one of them took over after my grandfather's death in the 1980s. And in fact, um, that man who is now passed, he passed in his 90s. He was there at my birth, not my father, um, because he was my grandfather's right-hand man for about 70 years. Was it primarily men in this organization? Yes, it was primarily men and it was exclusively men for a long time. Mm. The men were required to be celibate. So it was just boys and men. There were no families. It wasn't until my mother was 24 that her father, the cult leader, decided to allow her to marry one of his boys. And that was the first family that was raised in the cult. My Mm. older sister, who's just one year older than I am, she was the very first child born there. And then there were two other girls born between when she was born and when I was born, because once my mom was allowed to get married, then they started letting other people get married. Anyone who's ever gotten married there, and the very first wedding ever was in 1966, which was my parents. Um, Anyone who's ever been married there, no one's ever gotten divorced, ever. Oh, wow. Or separated, or in any way um, and that has been how many years now? You know, 55 years since the first weddings and, and many of the 
couples, they all met there. Nobody was allowed to marry anyone outside the cult. So the men had remained celibate, and then some of them in their 40s were getting married for the first time and ostensibly having sex for the first time. So it's like a pipeline. Like he's teaching these boys, and then they start to grow up, and they're like, I'm sticking with you, Grandpa. Yes, Grandpa. They all called him that. And when you think about it, the thing I didn't maybe stress enough in the book, because I was a child and I was trying to do the perspective of the years I was there, so the book doesn't even start until the later 70s. But back in the first three and a half decades, so for 35 years, not any of those boys ever got married. They just all, they became men by following my grandfather. And the ones who were probably in their 50s when I was born um, just continued to be single men all the way until their death in, deaths in the 90s. They're 90s. Okay. I have two questions about this. Number one, it feels like this is this very simple Boy Scout survival, whatever. But somewhere in this, it twists to him being like, and I'm going to live to be 500 years old and I am a prophet, becomes a little bit more magical. When did that happen? So in Forger, I don't discuss much of the history because I didn't live it. Right. Off the record, it's not really off this record because I'm on now, but not in the book, not included in the book. Um, I had did quite a bit of research for what the organization was, and um, I have speculation, and I will say this is my understanding, is that my grandfather ran a fairly normal after-school style program, weekend, taking the boys camping over the summer, fairly normal, probably until the 1950s. Um, my father joined in the 1950s. So it is my mother's father who ran the cult. My father was raised on the East Coast. And when he was 12 years old, he and his mother escaped her abusive husband, who was also my father's father. Um, that man died when um, he was 42. So he was um, he had passed long before I ever met him. My father never saw him again. When he was 12, he left the East Coast. They got on a bus. They came. This is tangentially mentioned in Forager, but not gone into in detail. So my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, arrived in San Gabriel with her son, lived in a chicken coop with her son, had no money, had an eighth grade education, and she sent her son to public school. He met my grandfather within a week of coming to California and became one of my grandfather's boys. And I believe that many of the boys who joined the organization were boys without fathers. And a lot of these Mm. mothers were just really happy that some man was taking interest and would teach their sons to become men. Right, right. That's so sad. I know. And that was my second question. And this is something if you don't want to answer it, you don't have to. But do you think that was like inappropriate interest? Do you think that there was like... Absolutely. I think there was a lot of inappropriate interest. Because you referenced they would give him massages. Right. And I don't think all the boys were doing that. Like as just as as with the Catholic Church or anything else, you know, victims are chosen largely for their accessibility and for their inability to talk. Mm-hmm. And um, there were certainly boys who had healthy families, and then there were those who did not, and right. those who had oh. no one to talk to. And it, it's a very common thing. So I believe that my father met my grandfather in 1949, right about then. My father ended up being very influential in the way the organization went. Um, he was the very first person allowed to get married. So he was he was a big, strong um, athletic man who my grandfather used as a leader. And by the time my father, as my understanding, when he was 16 years old, he was the bus driver and he continued to drive the bus on all these proselytizing trips until mm, long after I left. So he probably um, drove that bus around till about the year 2000. Oh, wow. And so my guess is he was driving for my grandfather for about 45 to 48 years. Crazy. Well, uh, did you have something? <laughs> well, I mean, there's so many other things I could say, but my father is still alive and um, he will not read the book. 
And I have um, a witness of someone who came with me to talk to. I talked to my father before I came out because I didn't want him to be sidelined too much. And he um, said, I will never read that, but I will ask. And he mentioned the name of the new leader. He said, I will ask him and he'll tell me what to think. Ooh, and wow. He, I have that on recording. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So my, my father still won't. And I, I did discuss with him and he was very, very, very angry because he had heard the word cult was on the front. And I tried to say, well, dad, maybe we could talk about it ahead of time. And he said, I divorced myself from you all when you were children. <gasps> and I do not want to talk about this. Oh, that's God. awful. God. Well, let's bring it back to your experience. You have so many wild stories. Wild is the perfect <laughs> so, word. I mean, yeah, 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 wild in more ways than one. I mean, tell us about life before you moved to the mountain. Like, what was the setup? Were you going to school? What was your life like? So when when I was born, um, we lived right next to the fields. We actually also lived. Uh, we bordered a dump, a city dump, and. As far as I understand, the field itself was a cleaned out city dump. So the field so, is the name a, of the cult sort of headquarters? Mm-hmm. It's okay. basically the location that it's centered on. So mm-hmm. it's on the border of El Monte and Arcadia, east of Pasadena. So my understanding again on this is that that um, specific location was created in the 1950s. And my father was one of the key boys. My father has a lot of stories about this, who literally physically dug out this dump it's at a cul-de-sac, like there's a suburb, and then there's this cul-de-sac, and they cleaned it all out, and then they planted fields so the boys could play sports, and then they built club rooms, and they built them themselves. My father's a teenager, used cinder blocks, and they built these club rooms so that they could have their religious meetings and then play sports in this. There's only one little entrance in, and then there's this like whole huge Almost, well, it's a, it's a basin. It is a basin, literally a basin. And then, but it's just a basin of fields. And then you can drive in and you can drive out. Um, there's regular houses on the way in. And we were all required, they, they call it quiet street. So like all the streets that go in, when the buses would come down and bring the boys, nobody's allowed to speak so that they don't disturb neighbors, but also so that no one knows what's going on. Wow. And so the neighbors don't really know what's going on in this basin that's at the edge of this cul-de-sac. And so when I was born, that was already well underway. And my mother was um, one of the first female leaders there, and she was coaching. They started bringing um, teams together. I believe the first year they had a team was 1973. None of the neighbors really knew what was going on. It was kind of the secretive area. So one of the things the organization was really good at, that the field was good at, is they had buses. And my father was in charge of all the buses. He was a mechanic. He was the driver. He was the planter. He was a physical – he was a field hand. My my father was the primary field hand. He ran the grounds. And one of the big things is when young boys would come here, and most of the young men who stayed were in the organization by the age of seven, many of them by the age of five. Wow. So they came to this organization. They came to the field really young. There were a lot more boys there than stayed. So there was kind of a funnel. It's almost like a pyramid scheme in the sense that a lot, a lot of people enter, but then only the ones who are who gravitate towards the really deep religion and the nature of needing a family are really the ones who stayed. So I'll give the example because um, he won't mind. Um, the man I married, I married an older man when I was very young. <laughs> he came there in the 1960s when he was seven. And he was a wonderful example to me, even as I was writing the book, because I could ask him questions. What motivated you? Like, what did you think about my grandpa? What did you, because, you know, we're, we're obviously not related. I mean, you know, we were, we had very different experiences, but he knew me since I was a baby. And, um, my parents were very central to the organization. And so 
a lot of the young men who were, you know, being groomed to be my grandfather's right-hand men, they all took care of us. We were raised, um, my mom wouldn't let women take care of us for the most part. There's some exceptions. I, I did meet one who um, left, I think, when I was five. And a lot of a lot of former members have come out of the woodwork and, and talked to me about the experience when they knew us when we were little kids. And a lot of very, very diverse stories in terms of um, their memories of, of my grandfather. But in any case, um, we were raised primarily by men because my mom thought that women were too soft and she didn't want us to be coddled. So we had mostly the young men babysitters. And the man I married did actually live in the house that we were raised in on the mountain um, when we were gone on these trips. And he stayed in my sister's room. And so he was kind of as many of them were raised as my older brothers. Trust Me is sponsored by Quince. So I ordered this black sweater that kind of looks like a jacket from Quince. And I actually wore it in this interview. And this week and next week's interview, it's kind of my favorite thing. I feel like I look like more of an artiste every time I wear it, but it's also so Mm. comfortable. Let Quince be your new go-to for luxury essentials at affordable prices. Quince offers a range of high-quality items at prices within reach, like 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters from $50, washable silk tops and dresses, organic cotton sweaters, and 14 karat gold jewelry. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. By partnering directly with top factories, Quince cuts out the cost of the middleman and passes the savings on to you. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices and premium fabrics and finishes, which we love. Give yourself the luxury you deserve with Quince. Go to Quince.com slash trust for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash trust to get free shipping and 365-day returns. Quince.com slash trust. How many buildings are on the property? Can you kind of paint the picture of what... I love these specific questions. (laughs) We want to see it. Is it a commune? Um, I I will speak to what it was um, rather than what it is now. At the field, at the time, um, there were approximately four buildings, depending on how you differentiate. So there was the cinder block uh, club rooms, which had multiple doors. So, so there was like six rooms, but it was one building. And then there was my grandfather's office that was like above, a, there was a, a boy's bathroom underneath. And then there was these stairs that went up and you had to be one of his official leaders to go up the stairs to his office. And then he had those mirrors, one-way mirrors where it, look, it looked like a mirror going in, but he could see out and he could see the whole oh, property. creepy. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so I, as a kid, I used oh to climb those gosh. stairs to go up there because he was my grandpa and I was allowed to go up and I could see the whole property. And then there was the main office where people would check in. So that's three buildings. And then there was Carolyn Hall, which was where they held the church service, which was also a cinder block building. And then in the fifth building they built in the early 80s when I was there, and that was a pavilion where they started playing basketball. Mm. So if you add the pavilion, that's five buildings. So it wasn't like a ton of people lived on the property necessarily? No, the, the young leaders, once they started getting married in the 60s, would live on the banks. So they started buying up the homes that bordered the property of the suburb. So then they would open up their gate um, to the field. So then there started being less people who would have to know about it because they owned almost all the surrounding properties. Right, right, right. Now, we didn't live there because I didn't come 
my family didn't have any money because my mother was born there and my father was very poor. And so we were in some ways a little bit of an exception because we had no other family. My father was an only child. His father died when he was a teenager. His mom was working minimum wage jobs until her 80s. Um, and so we didn't have any other source of income. But some of the families had, you know, like it's maybe in, in other cults that I've read about, like if you could send in like care packages, or you could send money so that your grandkids would maybe have some food or some extra clothes. And so a lot of them had money coming in and they had to tithe and give, you know, they were supposed to, you know, give their resources to the group. But I certainly knew children my age and a little bit younger who had other resources than we did. One of the key things in your book, I mean, your book is, yes, it's your story, but also doubles as this kind of um, nature guide in that, you know, each chapter begins with like an herb or a plant and you talk about how to eat it or cook it or handle it. Yeah, which I love, by the way. Like I've talked about this recently. I'm like, I want to become a survival person. I have zero survival skills right now, but I you want them. You can learn them, Lola. Absolutely. <laughs> Teach me. Again, the sound. The leather pants the leather- with her survival <laughs> dreams. I, Lola, I give you two hours. I swear to God. And I give myself 30 okay, minutes. I did grow up on a farm, though, so I do have that. Three hours. <laughs> um, so can you kind of talk about how your mom set you guys up to have these survival skills from a very young age? So one of the things about the location, there's the field, but there's also the mountain, and they're two different locations. My grandfather leased the mountain in the 1940s. So after World War II, I think that there was, um, well, I know that the WPA built, like the mess hall that was there. Um, There are similar buildings in Pasadena that were built during that time. But anyway, the government owns the land, but my grandfather leased it for, Mm. my understanding is $100 a year in the 1940s. Wow. But he would just bring boys up there during the summers. So in the 1970s, we didn't have anywhere to live because we lost uh, where we were living. Um, There was a fire. Some other things happened. But our nuclear family didn't have anywhere to go. So our grandfather, he tried not to be very nepotistic in the sense of I think he liked to keep people poor. But also he didn't want – he wanted us to be an example of God providing. Mm. And so we didn't – he did not give us resources. So we were very poor. And he said that we could live on this mountain. So my father got a station wagon. I'm not exactly sure how. He ended up getting a Jeep also from the Army surplus store. I mean, but your grandpa and your father just talk people into giving them Absolutely. all the time. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. so amazing. I mean, I, you I think like they got do a that. snowmobile. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was partly the era. My, my father was um, drafted into the Army, so he had some Army experience. And I think he had just grown up poor his whole life, so I'm sure he knew how to ask for things. Mm-hmm. And he um, drove us up to this mountain, and so our nuclear family lived there, and it was about um, a little less than a two-hour drive from the field to the mountain. So we were more isolated up there, and um, my grandfather would then send young men. He called them boys, but to be fair, they were in their 20s. He sent those boys up to live with us, certain ones, especially if they were having some difficulty. Um, And then he also had this dream then that my mother could help create a school and it would be a boarding school on the mountain. And so these boys and my father were going to build buildings and have this 
This never happened, by the way, but the idea was that there was going to be a boarding school up there. Instead, what happened is um, they did start a school, a private school and religious school that they didn't really tell people was as religious as it is. And then all the kids would have to come up by bus onto this mountain and they would do something called science camp. And my mother would teach basic survival skills. Mm. And so she had worked with some indigenous people up there um, and learned a lot of skills unofficially, you know, in the sense of she didn't go to school for this, but she learned the particular region and she became renowned in the area for understanding all the plant and wildlife that was up there. And there was a ranger station not too far from us. And my mother started volunteering there and she became the president of the interpretive society or something. And she was like working and we, we didn't go with her to do this, but I went up to visit I mean, when I was researching the book, I went up to the ranger station, was asking questions. My mom created a coloring book and like a nature guide um, that people like citizen science where people could check off birds that they saw or things like that and turn it into the ranger station. So she became somebody that the rangers often relied on for information because she lived up there and she would just spend all her time researching everything about the plants. And she believed that when the apocalypse happened, that she and those who were in the army of God, presumably us, would be able to survive when everything else failed. How old were you when you moved to the mountain? I was almost eight. So prior to that, you were not really dealing in the survival skills stuff. That was only once you moved. Correct. We we really didn't start doing that until we moved to the mountain. And I did go to school for three years. I went to public school from kindergarten, first and second. We were all pulled out of school. None of the kids went to school ever again after that, not wow. just our nuclear family, but you couldn't um, be a leader's kid is what they called us LKs and go to school. But they did put together a one-room schoolhouse. So there was in the Carolyn Hall where they did the church. And so all the kids, maybe ages 5 through 12, would be schooled. And then eventually they did um, – my mom was the principal of a school, and um, which still exists to the day, this day. My sister is now the principal. And they started this, and they eventually got accredited. I believe they got their first accreditation in the late 80s. Um, so my mom really did put together all of this. And um, But she was teaching you – a lot of very un, <laughs> unscientific <laughs> science, shall we say? I would say that my mother's um, methods for survival were very scientific, honestly. Uh, survival, you, right. Yes, right. yes. Because she, I mean, none of us died and none of us got sick. Uh, she was very good at knowing what you can and can't eat and teaching us the difference between species. I mean, is she species. like a hippie who would have just loved no. doing this anyway? Or was <laughs> no. she just like, it's almost the apocalypse, I got to do this? My mom looked like a forest ranger. She did not look like a hippie. Mm. She wore... Um, like khaki pants. I actually, I have a really good friend. She's a um, professor with me at Chafee College where I teach. And she used to be my student, but she had been raised in Wrightwood. And in the 1980s, after I, well, right around the time I I left, probably she's um, 10 years younger than I am. She remembers going to a talk with my mom and she was like putting this together. She's like, oh my goodness, I like with her Girl Scout troop um, as part of the nature, like the nature talk that she did at the ranger station. And she said she was so mesmerized because my mom had so much intelligence and intensity, Mm. but also she was scared of her. My mom looked very masculine. That's, she didn't look like it. She didn't, she never had long hair. She had a hair that was really short, like a boy's. 
that she got done sometime before she got married, and she had that exact same haircut till she died. Oh, wow. So she always had very short, boyish hair. She was very masculine in the way that she moved in the world. So my grandfather was – all the women had short hair once they became women. It's so interesting because – It's the opposite of of religion. Yeah, a lot of the things that you followed were like no makeup, no whatever, and it was essentially biblical. I love what you say about Jezebel somewhere in the book. (laughs) The hair thing, I wasn't allowed to cut my hair, and most women raised in these – denominations aren't. So yeah. the short hair is so interesting. It is. It's, well, they're saying you're supposed to be submissive, whether or not your mom is actually teaching you that. Yeah, you would think it would be the long hair and the femininity, and it really seems like it was the opposite. They wanted their people to look different than outside people. Yes. And so one of the things that um, I have heard from multiple men is that they all wore really short hair. No facial hair was ever allowed. And during the 70s, I think things obviously changed in the 80s, but in the 60s and 70s, there was a lot of long hair and a lot of facial hair. Yeah, that was in and style, women had, which is why they weren't allowed to do it. Right. right. And so the boys up. all looked military. Mm-hmm. And then the women, I think they were taking away their femininity so they wouldn't be temptation to the boys or the men. Mm. And I think that was very, very important because there was always more boys than there were girls and there was never enough girls to go around to marry these men. And I think it was... My grandfather really tried to keep – he didn't like women, in my opinion, at all. So there's many sex cults. I A lot of former members have said to me, this is like an anti-sex cult in the sense that they taught you all the time how the horrors of sex and you weren't – boys were taught all the time they weren't allowed to masturbate, things like that. Um, and they weren't supposed to ever have sex unless they were going to, like, get married and they just needed to have children. But it was only for procreation. And so women were really taught to – that it was our fault if boys were – Tempted by us. And so yeah. we would bind a, our breasts. A classic our teaching. Uh-huh. Yeah. That is not an uncommon but teaching. binding your breasts. So the minute you had breasts, did you have to start binding them? Yes. So, and I don't know that everyone was taught this. My mom, um, our, our physical, like, genetic um, composition is like all my sisters and my mom. We all have large breasts. And so I think that was particularly important for our family to do that. Um, I was so ashamed of my body because, mm-hmm. and it's one of the reasons I starved myself is because I didn't want breasts because they were they were really looked at down upon. And the more masculine you could be, the better. And if you are built kind of curvy, you really have to keep stick thin in order to get rid of your curves. Oh my gosh. Trust Me is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's the new year, which means it's time for a whole new you, right? Big resolutions can be exciting, but maybe you're already making small strides in your life that you don't even notice. Like organizing your apartment, making more homemade meals, or taking your morning walks while listening to your favorite podcasts. BetterHelp Online Therapy helps you find your strengths so you can ditch the extreme resolutions and make changes that really stick. I value therapy because it gives me a sounding board to understand what parts of my life are working and what parts I can try harder on. It's one of my favorite parts of my week. Therapy is great for learning positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. It empowers you to be the best version of yourself. And it's not just for those who've experienced major trauma. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. So just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Celebrate the progress you've already made. Visit BetterHelp.com slash trust today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash trust. 
Hello, I'm Rabia Chaudhary. I invite you to join me every Tuesday for new episodes of Nighty Night Bedtime Stories to Keep You Awake now on Podcast One. This new incarnation of Nighty Night is an anthology of stories that bring to life classic horror stories, some you're definitely familiar with and others you'll be hearing for the first time. Join me as I tuck you into bed with stories that will leave you sleepless all night long. Get new episodes of Nighty Night every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts. So when, when you were in this period, when did the trips begin? How old were you? Or was that from when you were a baby? It's interesting. I, I found out after the book came out that the first trip I personally went on was when I was about seven or eight months old. And that uh, my older sister and I, so she was talking about um, at our mom's service that that the two of us who were under two, both of us, uh, that my, my mom just took us on this proselytizing trip with all the men. And we were just sort of raised by whomever, you know, like happened to be there around because my mom wasn't really attentive in those ways, but she didn't have anywhere else to put her kids. So she just kind of brought them along. And so I was raised on these trips ever since I was a baby. Tell us what the trip is. The trip, which is capital T, and they were never plural. plural. It was always the trip. The trip started as, as all boys, all men. And I believe the first one was, I mean, so I was definitely on trips by the time, by the late 60s. So I think the first trip was probably about 1965 before my parents got married, before we were born. Um, But in any case, my father had, or my grandfather had taken boys um, to play ball and stuff. So he was always traveling with boys. But at some point, he started taking these trips and we had these little booklets, they call them, but they're kind of like, you know, pamphlets that you give out, like tracks, like religious tracks. Um, but we put on plays, and the plays would teach people about God, and we would go to campgrounds, and we'd stay at a different campground every single night. And the trip was 10 weeks, and it would be all the kids were taken away from their parents, and it was so all these boys would go, and they would learn how to be godly. And my grandfather would speak on a little microphone thing in the bus, and he would give devotions, and your eyes had to be on him the whole time. And and so I was a little girl raised on these all-boys trips. In the 1970s, at some, I think 74 probably, um, they started having an all-girls trip, but they would bring some men to drive the vehicles and to help put up the set for the plays. And so we would go on the all-girls trips as well. But my dad was in charge of driving the bus. So even though it was supposedly girls, it was my grandfather and my dad and a lots of other men who had lived with us who would be driving vehicles, putting up sets, and making sure the girls were, you know, under control. When you started talking about the trip in the book— I imagined what a number of our guests have done, like Moses Storm, which is like just driving around and kind of like walking out and preaching. But then you say there was a semi-truck, there was a whole caravan full of lighting equipment and sound equipment. Like these were elaborate productions. Can you tell us about those and also about being a poodle conductor? (laughs) (laughs) The circus? Yeah, I can't tell you why my grandfather decided to do this. I think he really was a very dramatic man and he loved the drama of this, but they would use this circus that started um, on the field property, which I can talk about, as a fundraiser. And then they would use the funds to go teach people about God all the way across the country. And I don't know why these sets became more and more elaborate, but they were like, we had lighting trusts and he, he really was basing this on Broadway and he wanted to have us rival Broadway. Wow. So we, there were musicals. My mom wrote them. We sang, we danced, we, you know, performed. When I first got to college, 
I um, did start working in theater. I knew how to weld. I knew how I knew how all the lighting things work. (laughs) It was it was actually some of it was really high quality. To be honest, my uncle did all the sound equipment, and we ate out of a concession stand, so like a you know cleared out van, kind of like a food truck. And so we all there was generally um, I would say it, it varied, but between fifty and seventy people. Wow, would all and we would just together everything, and we would sleep in tents. But we had generally eight vehicles, about eight vehicles, including one bus, and 50 to 75 probably was the highest um, amount of people. And we just, you know, ate together, slept together, talked to each other, and we would only proselytize to other people under supervision. So we weren't, like, going out and talking to other people. and We were learning a script. Mm. And the script was very fire and brimstone. Yes. But we hid a lot. And I think this is common in cults where there's a very big difference between the way you present to the outside world. Um, I remember when I first heard the term code switching, I'm like, oh, I've been doing that since I was a baby. You know, there's one set of rules of how you speak to the people inside. And then there's the things you say to the outside people. So we were taught to never talk to authorities, for example. And since I was like sort of the beginning of the very beginning of this sort of experimental, we're going to raise babies in this like strange community. I think the children of God cult has a lot of this too, is that you learn what to say to authorities. And we were told never to give our real name, never to talk about where we came from, not to tell them the name of the organization. We were taught to say, okay, I'm leaving now. And then to like, if we were in a building, like to go down to the next floor to, you know, and like how to escape and, so I learned all that, and I um, people still tease me now, but um, you know sometimes they'll call me an Irish Exeter, but a lot of times they'll call me a ninja. I just disappear all the time. It's very difficult <laughs> for me to understand that you're supposed to say goodbye. You're just, <laughs> just, just an Irish goodbye. You're fine. <laughs> I know it's a thing, right? I love to do that. Um, yeah, I do it fully sober. I can get out of anywhere. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we were taught that. So I feel like there's a lot of um, difference between being inside of the parameters of a cult and then the way that, again, that the parents present. maybe are present. Yeah. So the parents who sent their kids there often did had no idea what was going on because kids were never allowed to call home, ever. Really? Yeah, nobody called home. And they could write a letter, but they would read the letters before they sent it out. So they would send letters once a week. Oh. And um, those letters would be, it's like, you know, in prison. I've taught in prisons. It's very similar. <laughs> it, was like, it felt to me like being in prison um, later when I understood what prison was. I was like, oh, yeah. Well, that is complete um, isolation and mm-hmm. complete control of all of your communications. Yeah, and complete control with what you eat, um, anything. There's no, There was no media consumed. We weren't listening to radios or obviously there was no phones, but it was prior to computers and phones anyway. Um, I think once those things came about in the 80s, these trips all stopped. And my grandfather died in the 80s. And so things started shifting in terms of the way they managed control. Now, in my opinion, they still, as an organization, are very controlling, but it has certainly loosened. And I tried very hard because I'm not there to not speak to what they are now. Mm-hmm. That's understandable. So a poodle conductor. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so the the man who played Houdini, I mean, he was Houdini as far as I knew. Like he was the reincarnation of Houdini. Um, he was actually really, literally. Did you literally think that? I really thought that. Like, yes. Oh, did, really? I really believed that, but I was a child. Right. But were you told but, that? I mean, was that oh, yeah. like part of the. Oh, yeah. Oh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't realize that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And he actually kind of looked like him. And anyway, he came out of the woodworks after this book came out and wrote me several letters and just, you know, told me what his experience was, how they had gotten mm-hmm. rid of him, what had happened. Um, because he was, I just, I hadn't known what had happened to a lot of these people who were excommunicated um, when I was young. Uh, I think I was probably 11 or 12 when he was excommunicated. So I just hadn't heard from him again until the book came out. 
He was a magician. He was a a magician, (laughs) not musician, although he probably might have been that too. He was a magician and he was the most uh, talented magician that we had. And so he um, performed as Houdini. He called himself Houdini II, and no one used his real name. <laughs> and Houdini II with the Roman numerals. And he had a straight jacket, and he had this big trunk, and he would have all these different tricks. And eventually, he had a helicopter, and he'd hang down upside down from the helicopter. I a mean, helicopter? these were big productions. This is expensive. Yes. Oh my yes. gosh. Yes, very expensive. Um, but this was all part of. Now that was that was later, actually, probably in the eighties, but um, right before he left, probably. It was insane. But anyway, he would do underwater tricks. Um, and so I was this little girl that would um, be his – either you – sometimes I was called the magician's assistant. And that's – so I called myself an assistant. And I would come up there. And, of course, if you take a little girl and you're going to saw her in half or you're going to do it, it's, you know, kind of theatrical. I don't think I was very tricky because it wasn't very much I had to do except for be told. Like, for example, um, something I wrote in the book, there was this trunk and I would get into this little trunk and they'd bring audience members to check the trunk and make sure that it was indeed solid. And then they would poke these steel rods in holes all the way through the truck. So like you're spearing this child who's inside. And it's a real trick, but it's been done, you know, I think in lots of magic shows. But really the trick is just the person inside has to move around. Like it's kind of a, you don't really need a solid space if you can move all your limbs. I and did not realize. I was that a contortionist. I thought that, oh, wow. Wow. And there was no trap door. There wasn't like anything. You, we, I wasn't like hiding anywhere. I was literally That's in terrifying. the box. That's <laughs> terrifying. Oh, scary. it was, yes. I still have nightmares about that. So being the poodle conductor was a much easier job, but <laughs> all I did, my my grandmother owned the poodle. The poodle's name was Swa. And he had, um, I don't know how he learned to do this, but he'd get up on his hind paws. And so then I practiced all the time. And we had this little piano and he would play the piano with his paws. And I would stand up there being very theatrical, like six, seven, eight years old and, and older too. I think I did it until I was probably 12. And I would have this conducting thing and like I was doing an orchestra and the, oh, while the poodle my. played. Was but he we playing a real song? I mean, no, you just we tried to make it sound I like, like I that. Dream, dream animals like crazy. Well, you know what we would do though is we'd put some background music in it so it kind of oh, sounded like he was smart, playing smart, real nice. song. <laughs> I mean, he was playing his own real song. Oh, I feel yeah, like it was real. Yeah. Thing. I grew up doing ventriloquism and auctioneering. Oh, you did? Yes. Well, we did that. On, I didn't even say that in the book, but yeah, I did ventriloquist you know, in the pre-show. Okay, so why were you doing this? This is unrelated to my cult experience. My mom what? just <laughs> <laughs> My mom at the time was doing a lot of beauty pageants and like motivational speaking and she would learn these skills to incorporate into those things. So she How learned ventriloquism. Motivational speech. Because she wanted it to be like creative and okay. like different. And okay. so she would learn these skills. So she learned some magic and did, my brother and her did some magic and some very light escape art. And then I started learning ventriloquism just along with her because she'd be playing the tapes in the car. Okay, can you please say something so we can see you do this? I only ever do the Pledge of Allegiance because that's oh. just what I'm used to doing at this point. I can do more, but okay. I pledge allegiance. To the flag of the United States of America. <laughs> <laughs> Should I be the person talking to this? Okay, when I squeeze, open your mouth. And to the republic, for which it stands, one nation. Okay. <laughs> this is beautiful. For those of you who cannot see this, <laughs> it's a work of art. That's really good. Thank you. Yeah, it really is. So I feel Impressive. very connected to you on this because I yeah. have the cult connection with a lot of people. I do not have like circus-like skills in common mm-hmm. in addition to that with a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, the circus is its own like secret 
culty experience, you know, magic. But you guys, yeah, have a lot to, to discuss, I'm sure, <laughs> that laymen can't be privy to. I know. Well, I mean, ours was just some, we went to the ventriloquist convention and it was really dorky. That's pretty much the extent <laughs> of it. But I, I just like, I still am trying to wrap my head around it. So like you're doing the circus and that was going to like subversively convert people. I would have converted if I saw a poodle playing the piano. <laughs> right. Um, I, I guess more simplistically, I would say this I, I, it's it's difficult thing to explain, but the circus itself was only one weekend a year. It was the annual family mm. circus, and we did this huge thing. And then we took the circus acts on the road, and we called them pre-shows. And the pre-shows were to get people interested in us. Now, they were acts from the circus, so they were elaborate. I see. But that would lead the people in the campground to watch mm. us, and then it was like a bait and switch. Right. We would put on religious plays. After the pre-show. I'd be so mad. I can't <laughs> see a poodle and now I'm hearing this. Would people just leave? Or would they all um, be know, like quiet it's And then we would ask for donations. And so then we'd go around with a hat and mm. we'd sing the song. And like I'd have this mic and I'd walk around. And like we'd talk to all the grandparents. And we'd sing the special song, you know, to grandparents for like what all that they've done. And um, oh, that's nice. For everyone. So I think it was – and that the, – the grandparent song was the end of the pre-show. So it really warmed them up. Right. Um, and the thing is we were trying to convert them. But honestly, I think we were mostly trying to get money. Fair. Yeah. yeah. And so people like to give money to religious groups if they think that they're doing the word of God or that they're doing moral work in this country. And so the, the idea was that this country is going to hell in a handbasket, but we – are the light of the world and we are the army of God. And so it was an interesting, I mean, I feel like it's taken me so many years and all the people, the former members too, they're like, you can't even, someone will be like, I've, I've been married for 20 years. My husband still has no idea what I'm talking about. Like, like the thank you for writing thing. your book because at least I could hand them and say, look, I'm not making up. One, yeah. one woman said, she's like, I just kept telling my husband forever. And I'm like, look, it's in a book. I promise I wasn't making it up. Wow. Yeah. Um, but it was really, we- I mean, there was very strange juxtapositions. Yeah. It's not like you were like, our prophet is going to live to be 500 years old and the end of the world. You know, it was just general Christian sort of teachings. Right. So the people on the inside were told the 500. They were told that on the trip in the bus on a microphone. But the people who we were preaching to on the outside, we didn't tell them all that. We told them. I wouldn't say it's general Christian stuff. I mean, some of it sort of was. But it was more um, allegory. You know, like – what is that book? Um, Christian is the name of the um, every man. Well, there's every man, but then there's Pilgrim's Progress. Oh, I don't know it. No. Oh, for all you listeners, um, some of you will remember Pilgrim's Progress. I think it was written in the 1800s. No, earlier than that even. But Pilgrim's Progress is this allegory of Pilgrim, whose name is Christian, goes on this journey and he has to overcome all these things and, and like get out of a pit and like cross the quicksand and, and climb a mountain and all that. So we were doing more allegories for our audience to teach them that they could overcome the devil. But we didn't like give – we didn't quote Bible verses. And my grandfather, for the most part, tried to separate us. Like he really hated Jimmy Carter because Jimmy Carter was a watered-down Christian, you know, that right. kind of thing. Yes. So we needed to separate ourselves hmm. from the way the world saw Christians. My parents were like that too. They would rather me hang out with like an atheist family than a Christian family because the Christian family wasn't the right kind of Christian. And that's worse than right. just being an atheist. I find, oh, I I'm glad like you that understand happens, that. Yeah. yeah. I feel like that happens in Mormon. I feel like that happens with a lot of religions. Too. Yeah. 
Yeah, because you're betraying the correct way versus mm-hmm. not knowing the correct yeah. way. Yeah, right. And those who know but don't adhere. Exactly. Okay, Michelle, I have to have you tell this story because I laughed out loud. Um, can you explain jumping out of a bush at the <laughs> bank? So I spent a great deal of time. So we, we really did need money because we didn't have regular jobs. And um, I was one of those kids who was sent out. And there's still lots of kids out there selling candy. I don't know what they do with all their money. But um, in the years that I was selling candy, we I would be alone at a bank. And, you know, there's – at least there used to be a lot of hedges. I think there still are at banks if anyone even goes to banks anymore. But there's these hedges around the banks. And I would watch the people come in. And, and I got very good at, like, seeing who would have money or who would be most susceptible to this. And – um so I would becoming a little cult leader, a little. Oh, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> absolutely. Um, so we, I'd have a box of candy, and I would hide it in the bushes, and then I would just take like one box of peanut brittle, for example, or we'd have toffee peanuts as well, or saltwater taffy, even. Like there, there was four different types of candy, and then I would jump out and scare somebody, and I'd be like, "Hey, out there, here's your chance! Jump for joy, sing and dance. Nobody for in the history man has matched this offer, and no one can. It's the greatest opportunity. If miss it now, don't cry to me. So step right up, be first in line." Just place your your name on this dotted line, and like I'm, <laughs> ah, jumping out of the bushes yes, to yes, chance at people. Uh-huh. I would be so confused. I would give you money just out of sheer exactly. confusion, and they did oh, very often. <laughs> did you make up this? This I don't know if I, I I don't know who made it up. I don't know if everybody even did it. And then I would keep going and I'd follow them. Just sign, just sign. Don't waste my time. Oh no, my god, you, you know. it's like a nightmare. Oh yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, but the the resilience you're getting through all of this is like unbelievable. Yeah, rejection just doesn't matter, right? I felt like I was always rejected. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. not necessarily from the money, but like in life. And Mm. so it just felt, I don't know, like I think I was a shy child in most ways. But I think that that, yeah, code switching between like having, like I wasn't allowed to talk to people. And then I was given the script basically and said, get this money. And they would come back after 10 hours generally. I'd get there before the bank opened and I'd be there when the bank closed. And so I would just be alone there. By yourself? Wow. Yeah. And starting at about age seven. And so I would have this this envelope of money. I never spent the money. I just turned it all over. And you would just be there. You weren't allowed to use the bathroom anywhere. Of course, I would like try to figure out, you know, the best way to d- deal with that. But um, I think that talking to people was – it was an act and it, it was – you know, it's like learning to perform. It is mm, performing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And that's where we'll leave that for this week. Stay tuned next week for part two. It remains fascinating and also harrowing. Um, Megan, question for you. Have you – were you ever in the Girl Scouts? Oh, that's a great question. Um, actually, I we weren't really allowed to be. Um, it was considered kind of a, a Christian – group that that we weren't allowed to join so no i was never a brownie i was never a girl scout and i really wanted to be oh really you wanted to be what what yeah what was appealing about it to you um that every single other girl in my class was in it and all had the like patches and the uniforms and i felt like it was a it well it it was a literal club that i wasn't allowed to join (laughs) oh (laughs) yeah so I really, I really wanted to, uh, I really wanted to be a brownie and a Girl Scout, and I definitely did not want to take that to the farthest uh, denominator and go live on a mountain or anything doing it. But <laughs> to wear the little outfit, yeah, I, I wanted it. I really feel like I Girl Scout stuff like just never even occurred to me as a kid. Maybe it's because we moved a lot, so I wasn't in one place long enough to really mm. encounter mm-hmm. many Girl Scouts. All I knew was the cookies, and I wanted the cookies. 
But that right. that was kind of the extent of it at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Now I want to be a Girl Scout. Yeah, I would love to be a Girl Scout now. I, I guess I kind of am. I have like a girl group that I like to get together with and eat cookies. <laughs> <laughs> Do you learn about wildlife? No. no. Okay. <laughs> Let me just answer you before you finish anything about learning. No, no. <laughs> we do not. Um, but next week's episode with Michelle, we do learn a lot more and I can't wait for y'all to hear it. And as always, remember to follow your gut, watch out for red flags and, and never, never ever, ever trust, trust me. Bye. Trust Me is produced by Kirsten Woodward, Gabby Rapp, and Steve Delamater. With special thanks to Stacey Para. And our theme song was composed by Holly Amber Church. You can find us on Instagram at Trust Me Podcast, Twitter at Trust Me Cult Pod, or on TikTok at Trust Me Cult Podcast. I'm Ula Lola on Instagram and Ola Lola on Twitter. And I am Megan Elizabeth 11 on Instagram and Babraham Hicks on Twitter. Remember to rate and review and spread the word. 